The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. In this episode, we will talk of how and why it takes a nation to manage a wondrous ocean realm in the Atlantic Ocean. We shall talk about creating out in the Atlantic Ocean something similar yet different from a national park on the land, something that isn't managed by one agency, but it takes a nation. It takes all the agencies, and we've got seven tribal groups participating and state agencies, so it's an exciting coming together of multiple managers. Uh, We'll learn about the powerful synergy when ecosystem-based management is advanced by very collaborative and inclusive ocean planning. And finally, we're going to talk about the politics behind creating a wondrous ocean place, getting things done in Washington. So please visit us at our website, www.oceanriver.org.org. So you can be part of the conversation. You can go to our blog page and post on the blog page. Uh, You can Facebook us at Ocean River Institute. Um, and also on our webpage is more information and ways to contact us. So my guest today is Alex Zamero, and Alex is the Ocean River Institute's intern for the fall semester. Uh, Alex is calling in today from Worcester, where he lives. So how's life out in Worcester, Alex? Worcester's great. Um, it's nice to see all the foli- foliage coming in. Um, Although I have spent the, most of the past four years of my life in western Massachusetts where the foliage is actually even better than Worcester. Um, I graduated from UMass Amherst in May, and that's why I was out in western Mass. And now I'm interning here with the Ocean River Institute, and I'm also participating in an internship with Mass Drive Clean, which is a state-sponsored campaign to educate consumers about electric vehicles by allowing them to test drive electric vehicles. Um, so it's really interesting to try and advance the electric vehicle industry, and that's something that I am really stand by. Yeah, it's been really great you coming to work with us, uh, and the two of us going into, or, yeah, going into Beacon Hill and learning about the electric energy legislation and, and uh, other, you know, um, greenhouse gas, other forms of energy, uh, you know, like wind and, and uh, solar and all that stuff. It's the great broadening of just besides talking about oceans to, to learn from you about the energy stuff um, that's out there. Um, but our topic today involves, we're going to combine two ocean realms. Cassis Ledge is out there in the Gulf of Maine, and we want to combine that with the canyons and seamounts that are much further offshore beyond Georgia's, uh, Georgia's bank. 
into one spectacular place. Um, that sounds great. I'm definitely interested to learn more because, honestly, I have not heard of either of these places before coming to the Ocean River Institute. Um, would you mind telling me what Cash's Ledge is, where is it, and have you ever been there? Yeah. Uh, Cash's Ledge is out in the middle of the Gulf of Maine, and the Gulf of Maine is essentially a sea beside the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, Cassius Ledge, well, the Gulf of Maine is, um, it goes from Cape Cod all the way northeast to Nova Scotia, and it's closed off from the Atlantic Ocean by George's Banks and Brown's Banks, and so there's just a 60-mile opening, deep water opening between the banks that lets the cold Labrador current water and the Atlantic Ocean connect with the Gulf of Maine. And then right in the middle of that, pretty close to the middle, is this underwater mountain range that where it is tallest is known as Cash's Ledge. And it's about 80 miles east of Gloucester, 100 miles south of Portland, uh, maybe 90 miles south of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And I've actually had the honor to be out there. It takes a long time to get there, but uh, back in... Uh, Back in the 1980s, um, I had the good fortune to work for Sea Education Association on board the uh, research vessel Westward, 100-foot staysail schooner as assistant scientist, and um, we got out there, and uh, the boat hove to, and the chief scientist wanted to know about a protein, fish protein on the water there, so he... Uh, had me, uh, we lowered the dory, and I got into this rowing 16-foot, you know, lap streak rowboat with square oars that, you know, stay in the, between the sole pins and rowed out about half a mile away from the boat. And then I had in my um, lap some uh, uh, toothpicks and uh, oil of different weights, and I would dip the oil, the toothpick in the oil, and then lean over the side and see if the, the oil sank or spread out on the surface. And that's how we figured out how much protein and fish protein was on the surface of the water. So I'm doing this, you know, looking down beside the boat, and suddenly, right looming over at me was this big lobster boat. The lobster boats have a good way of charging around and screeching to halt uh, and just coming out of nowhere. And so the lobsterman said, you know, where are you bound? And I said, I'm going to Massachusetts. And he goes, great. Would you like a lobster? And I said, yeah. So he handed me over a 30, must have been 35-pound lobster. I mean, it was enormous. The claws were like the size of codfish. And uh, they don't ban the claws at that size. So um, there I was, you know, keeping my feet you're practically out of the boat, up on the seat, the forward seat, you know, with toes pointed skyward because I was barefoot, and managed to row back to uh, the westward uh, with this enormous lobster that uh, we thoroughly enjoyed. Um, so that's so I have this fan, I have this sense of wonderful wildlife in uh, Cassius Ledge. Yeah, it's cool that you had the opportunity to experience it firsthand. Um, so. Why, why is this place so special? Can you describe the benthic eco ecosystems of Cash's Ledge? Yeah, that's the thing, is that because it's an underwater mountain range, you've got different kinds of bottom types um, there in Cash's Ledge. You have uh, six-foot-high kelp, forests of kelp growing up off the bottom, and associated with the kelp forest is a, a variety of codfish that is red in color. So it's got the same stripe and barbell underneath, but it's reddish, which is really striking. And then there are 
four different types of seabed, four types of ocean floor, four essential fish habitats. One is the gravel ocean floors, and those are gravel's essential habitat for the demersal fish, the cod, the haddock, the pollock, and the hake. And then you have the ocean floor of sand, and this is where the monkfish likes to bury into it and lure fish to it. And monkfish also eat diving birds, particularly ones with small bills, uh, like the long tail and the alcids, because uh, these are birds that dive uh, for small fish. And the monkfish actually has its back, its uh, first spine on its back is tilted over its head and dangles a little lure to call in uh, fish, and it could also work for long tail and for alcids. Um, you don't see out there the, um, the thick-billed birds, the uh, ducks like the eiders and the scoters, uh, because they have thick bills, and so they won't be going for little monkfish lures. They'll be going for uh, crunching up mussels, and so you see them over the mussel shoals. And we also have muddy bottom out there, muddy bottom areas, and that's where the Acadian redfish and sea anemones live. And then finally, there are boulder reefs where lurk the toothy wolffish. And so the greater the mix of these four ocean floors, the squigglier the boundary lines between them, the greater will be the ecological importance of Cash's Ledge. And we know that Cash's Ledge is very important because it is a hot spot in the Gulf of Maine, a place of many sightings for humpback whales. And obviously the whales, you know, they're lingering there because there's an abundance of marine life there, like nowhere else, you know, except for the Stellwagen Bank is, is another hot spot. Uh, but those are the two hot spots. Cool. Well, that was a great description of uh, Cassius Ledge. Uh, there, another <laughs> wondrous ocean place is Oceanographer Canyon. Um, would you mind telling me where that is, and have you ever been there as well? Yes. So the canyons are off the continental shelf, where the the slope water goes, where the you know, so off of Georges Banks, south of Georges Banks are um, Georges Banks is about three hundred feet deep, and then uh, the the continental slope plunges down uh, 10,000 feet to the abyssal plain of the, of the offshore Atlantic. And uh, Oceanographer's Canyon is one of the first canyons heading out along the south edge of Georgia's banks. Uh, and it is, uh, therefore, it's, it's one of the banks that I had the good fortune to cross over when transiting on the westward from uh, Boston or Woods Hole to Bermuda or Point South, or or, New, or even Newfoundland, if you're going, you know, outside around the uh, uh, Nova Scotia. And so twice I had a good fortune of passaging over that, and twice I saw sperm whales, uh, and they live right there in the canyons because in the nooks and crannies they can go after the squid and whatever else they eat there. Uh, and so I had the good fortune when I was curator of natural history at the Peabody Essex Museum to uh, lead a commercial whale watch where uh, we chartered a, uh, a fishing boat, you know, a, a, a off-the-rail fishing boat where um, people could sleep below deck. So we, you know, we left in the afternoon, we slept overnight, and then in the morning um, we were in the, the Mediterranean blue waters of the deep off the continental shelf, you know, over in the canyon lands. And there was uh, a sperm whale. And the sperm whale was actually dead, just floating on the surface there, Probably a ship's okay. And uh, I turned, and the captain was putting on his wetsuit. 
and he said that well, he was a jeweler when he wasn't being a captain, and he said that uh, he was going to jump in the water and swim over and cut out some of those teeth because scrimshaw is very valuable, don't I know? You know? And uh, I said, uh, well, I couldn't talk about Marine Mammal Protection Act or anything like that. I just said, look, that whale is filling up with methane and sulfur gases like a thermos bottle, and it's going to blow if you touch it. And when it does, there are going to be sharks everywhere feeding around. And that managed to get the captain to put his clothes back on again and not leave us, you know, 120 miles southeast of Chatham or something, uh, watching the whale. And we did go on and see two more sperm whales. So it's a fabulous place to see sperm whales. And then the sea, yeah, so that's the canyon. Cool. Sounds like a really unique place. Um, so I do understand that there has been legislation to reauthorize the National Marine Sanctuaries Act, which was passed in 92. Um, and that was when Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary was established. But since then, not much has happened in the way of marine protected areas. Why is that? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, um, you know, 20 years ago, uh, we were setting aside uh, parts of the ocean to be uh, marine protected areas where we would restrict the access so that these places could be undisturbed and... Um, allowed to recover and fully protected. Uh, it, it, it's a great way to go. And uh, the theory, we haven't seen it in New England, but the theory is, that we've seen it down in Florida and some other places, where uh, if you close off an area, the fish will recover, and then the fish spill out of the area, and so the uh, fishing boats uh, benefit by having closed off the, the inner portions of that. And so that was doable back in the early 90s, but... There are only so many places in our heavily peopled seascapes that we have. Uh, so it's also difficult to exclude people from the ocean, unlike a, a national park, which is either, you know, someone owns that land and can put up fences and stuff. So concurrently with um, the sanctuary program, there is the national estuary program, which is managed by the EPA as opposed to NOAA. Uh, and the estuary program is very inclusive. It tries to involve all the people who participate in the estuary, and it set up these committees to get make sure that in a way to transfer the information up, you know, like a funnel, have a broad open funnel that collects a lot of information and brings it down to the chairs of the committees and so they can make informed decisions. And so that um, has really taken hold, and uh, a, a better version of that was in 2008, uh, the Mass Massachusetts passed an ocean planning bill, which, um, like the estuary program, uh, mandated that everyone who has anything to do with the ocean, any agency, um, talk with one another um, so that they can plan in unison. And then uh, following that model, in 2010, President Barack Obama declared, or by executive order, created the National Ocean Planning Council. And there also are regional ocean planning boards uh, that actually began under Bush's uh, direction. And uh, that, they're really moving ahead here in the Northeast. So in the Northeast, we have a regional ocean planning council that is really making progress. And in 2015, uh, they should have completed a um, – no, it's 2015. So they're in the process of completing a general management plan with tons and tons of data. And it's been uh, coming together of information um, 
And yeah, and we saw an example of this. Well, the, the way the the, count, the way the council works is that it is ten uh, federal agencies like the Coast Guard and the Navy and EPA, and then ten uh, representatives from five coastal states, and then seven tribal groups are all represented. And then there are open meetings, and so you and I have gone to these things, as have all the other ocean users, especially uh, fisheries council and, and um, uh, mineral and mining and, and, you know, all the different interest groups that are there and stuff. And um, so, yeah, we, you and I actually drove up in, in pouring torrential rains to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. <laughs> How was that? Yeah, a little scary. Yeah. So um, up there, we um, there was we had a meeting with scientists. Um, well, we we kind of were observers. We went into this into the library there, and uh, around a, a square table sat the scientists, and a lot half of them were on the internet or something on on computers. And, and, I mean, distant uh, communicators. And a, about a dozen of us sat along the sidelines uh, and learned about uh, ecosystem-based management. I bet it was, and they talked at a very high level, so I was just afraid you were, like, you know, drinking from a fire hydrant. (laughs) Yeah, um, it was cool. It was a bit of an information overload, especially since I don't have a science or ocean management background. But it was definitely very impressive to hear from experts in the field working to develop a regional ocean plan that ocean and fishery management agencies can use to make decisions. Um, while a lot of the technical information went over my head, some of the main points that I took away from the meeting included the sheer complexity of managing an ocean because of the many different actors involved. Um, also, the complexity yeah. with respect to what information will go into the plan, such as how ecosystems and species are grouped and categorized and what indicators are used to monitor and measure these ecosystems. Um, Really, to me, the other important takeaway from the meeting was the underlying reason for ecosystem-based management, uh, for this ecosystem-based management working group, and that is to create a regional ocean plan that's meant to result in improved ecosystem services and conservation education that benefit the environment and the public. So they're really working for the public, which is great. Um, yeah. The Northeast Regional Ocean Planning Body is going to set a precedent for other regions in the U.S. as they develop ocean plans. So since there's a lot of activity in the northeastern U.S. waters, ocean management strategies implemented here will undoubtedly influence ocean policies across the U.S. Yes. <laughs> a lot of policy talk there. <laughs> well done. <laughs> for those of you who aren't walking like I am, um, thank you for pulling through that uh, tortuitous uh, Explanation by um, by Alex there, um, but let's let's get into um, you know the nuts and bolts. Tell me a little more about what ecosystem based management involves. Sure. Well, I learned most about of about what I know of ecosystem based management from Mr. Michael Fogarty, who works with the Northeast Fisheries Science Center in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. He's involved in the Northeast Planning Body Ecosystem Based Management Work Group that we attended. And he's played an integral role in defining and advocating for e- ecosystem-based management. Um, after looking through Fogarty's work, I would define ecosystem-based management as an inclusive, place-based approach to managing the interaction between humans, animals, and the environment in an ecosystem. It protects ecosystem structure 
they function to ensure a sustainable flow of ecosystem services. And a really important aspect of ecosystem-based management that's emphasized a lot is the importance of human interaction within these ecosystems. So basically, if we seek to benefit from what the ocean offers, it makes sense that we should properly manage and care for these areas. So it's really important to have this group of experts working together to make a plan for our ocean. Yeah, it's really complicated, and people are in the middle of it all. I mean, these are people's seascapes that we're talking about, and and, uh, people have been, you know, my Scottish ancestors were fishing for cod off Massachusetts in uh, 1394, so we go back a ways to, and of course, Native Americans have been working the resource for even longer, Uh, so it's, you know, important that we include people in the management, and and how, you know, it, it sounds like we're exploiting the resource but we're really just talking stewardship of how to get along with the resource. And um, what, what's an example of, a, of an ocean ecosystem-based management place? Sure. Um, well, I listened to the earlier broadcast on this program between you and Noah Randall about ecosystem-based management relative to Atlantic herring, herring and oyster reefs. And an oyster reef itself is an ecosystem because it contains the oysters themselves, phytoplankton, zooplankton, and seaweed. Um, this oyster reef is actively managed to maintain the ecosystem to provide a habitat for fish. And additionally, managers need to balance the welfare of the oysters with external forces such as predators and storms that may have impact that ecosystem. The oyster reef acts as a sponge absorbing the energy from storms and buffering our shores and from waves. And furthermore, this ecosystem must be properly managed because of the economic value of the oysters. Basically, oysters are a source of food for us. So an oyster reef itself is an example of ocean ecosystem-based management. Yeah, that's a great example because, you know, oyster reefs, I just had oysters for lunch today. It's just amazing how here in Massachusetts we have so many different uh, oysters to choose from now, so many communities, uh, particularly up and down Cape Cod, are are offer, are growing oysters and offering oysters, you know, from Sipawisset and Falmouth to Edgartown to Catuit and Wayano and uh, Great Bay and East Ham has a new one out called Bees River. I never heard of that. Um, Duxbury, of course, Wellfleet is way ahead of us, and they have been doing some really wonderful oyster reef work up there. Uh, UMass uh, professors and students have been working hard to. Uh, put in more oyster reefs up there, and they're finding that it really helps the community of Wellfleet, not only to eat well, but to be uh, buffered from storms and to see less erosion. Uh, it's an all-around win-win. Uh, what a great example. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come, come back. We're going to go back to the wondrous ocean place that includes Cassius Ledge and offshore canyons and seamounts with Alex Zamero. So stick around, and we'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. 
They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, welcome back. You're probably not listening to us live, uh, but I, therefore, I urge you to go to our website, www.oceanriver.org, oceanriver.org. And on the website, you'll see that we have six campaigns on the homepage, and you want to click on the one that's about um, Wondrous Ocean Place. Uh, we may have a blog posting, and that blog postings, you can uh, correspond to us in the blog. Uh, also, you can write to us from that web page, but mostly you can follow along and, and get more information and have some eye candy to look at uh, while um, Alex Zamero and I talk about how it takes a nation to manage a wondrous ocean realm out there in the Atlantic Ocean. Alex? Yeah, it's uh, been very interesting to learn about this ocean place and what goes into managing an ocean in general. Um, so, Rob, when did you first hear about the president's interest in protecting Cash's Ledge and Oceanographer Canyon? Yes. Uh, in August, I returned from Scotland where I was helping the locals uh, stop scallop dredging inside their marine protected areas. 
And for that story, you get to go to OceanRiver.org, and you can click on the blog and hear about my Scottish adventures. But when I got back, um, NRDC, who had brought the idea and has developed this wonderful idea of protecting the canyons and seamounts off of New England, uh, they um, contacted me and said, Rob, um, uh, the president is thinking about declaring a national marine monument. And a national marine monument is different from a national park in that the national park is created by an act of Congress. So we have the Boston Harbor Island National Park area, and it was created by Congress. And then the president signs it into law, and that was in 96. And this time, um, although the president can also, or the president has uh, special authorities from the Antiquities Act, to act without Congress if he really feels an area is endangered and needs immediate protection. Uh, and so President Bush did that to the North Hawaiian Islands, and President Obama was, or the Center for Environmental Quality, was wondering, gee, uh, in October, Secretary John Kerry is going to be in Chile talking about oceans. Wouldn't it be great if they could declare something done for oceans? And it, it turned out that that became instead um, an announcement for um, two, for the first time, as we were talking earlier about the National Marine Sanctuaries, uh, that there would be a National Marine Sanctuary. Uh, the president is calling for NOAA to follow up on the recommendations that have already come in from community groups to create a, for Congress to move forward on a National Marine Sanctuary in Lake Michigan and in um and off of Maryland, probably in the Chesapeake or Potomac area there in Maryland. Uh, but in August, I get this contact saying, um, look, you know, here's an opportunity for the president to save these canyons and uh, uh, the seamounts. And let's also include uh, Cassius Ledge in this project. And Cassius Ledge is something the Conservation Law Foundation has been working hard on trying to get better protection for as well. So it all came together with them asking me if I would um, speak. They had done their homework, and they decided Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts was the go-to guy for this kind of, to urge the president to so act. And so um, that's what I did. Cool. Well, unfortunately, I understand that the effort did not turn out the way you wanted. Why is that? Well, um, the, the ask was, you know, um, crafted, um, I was scripted on what to say and so forth, and then I was told, oh, and have all my friends contact the senator uh, asking him to so act, uh, but make sure none of your friends are fishermen. We don't want any fishermen. Uh, and it's like, well, that's weird. I don't know which friends are fishermen and which are not. Uh, so I did not ask anyone. It, it just became um, my request. And it turned out that uh, this request for protecting the area was being done despite the Fisheries Council having spent three years reaching an agreement to close off Cassius Ledge to commercial fishing. And so the fishermen have been doing an excellent job in this instance of protecting and not ex over-exploiting uh, Cassius Ledge. Uh, they don't fish below 500 meters on the canyon lands uh, and, the, of course, the seamounts are way off, off, off their radar. But uh, there's a, there has historically been some uh, uh, trawling in the shallow waters, you know, the, the top um, 200 meters or, or more um, 
above 500 meters. So that was another issue that, but for the most part, these areas are of interest because they're pristine. And so I was shocked that this program was going around the planning efforts of the Northeast Regional Planning Board and instead just handing over these portions. It looked like handing it over to one agency to manage at the expense of everyone else. And that works great. If you're Yellowstone National Park, you know, that was handed to Interior, and they've done a fabulous job there. Uh, but they don't get along well with the neighbors. They don't have to. They just put a big fence and stuff. But in the ocean, uh, the fish don't know where the boundaries are. Uh, the resources, you know, what works best for that ribbon of ocean uh, slope water from the New York Bight to Canada, practically, down Georgia's banks there, um, you know, that should be managed as a whole and not cookie-cutter out, you know, uh, little parts for uh, one agency to manage. So that was, um, I kind of have egg on my face for um, going that way. Right. And so I understand here at the Ocean River Institute, we're kind of taking a different approach now where we're working on a letter to send to the president. Uh, what's this That's letter right. about? That's right. So, um, you know, NRDC put 10 years into figuring out their approach. They, they was very learned. Um, it was the, the best approach for totally protecting stuff, and it, it just was like hitting a wall there. And so uh, we crafted a more inclusive letter saying, look, let's include uh, the regional managers and let's recognize the good work of the Fisheries Council. I mean, every 10 years they reauthorize Mags and Stevens, the fisheries laws of the land, and every 10 years they tighten up the regulations, and as a result... Um, very few uh, fish docks are being overfished. So there are 270-some-odd commercially valuable fish docks in American waters. And since 2000, uh, early 2000s, uh, 34 fish docks have gone from overfished to sustainably fished. We only have 28 left that need to be sustainably fished that are still like the, like two populations of cod, the cod in the Gulf of Maine and the cod on Georgia's banks and South of Cape Cod. Those are two of the 28 that we haven't quite got right yet. And so we need um, to finish that management job. So this proposal is to include all the users um, as they are doing because the, the new, this new system of planning, regional planning, inclusive everybody, is addressing the problems, has succeeded so that today we have the best managed fisheries in the world. And I think because in the most heavily fished areas of the Atlantic Ocean, of our American waters, um, we have this pristine uh, with six-foot kelp forest, you know, Cassius Ledge section. So what a testimony of responsible ocean policies, ocean management. And I think that the national park should do two things. It should protect, it's not a national park, this wondrous ocean area should protect um, that area from oil, gas, and mineral mining. That's a huge threat that we're facing. And it should, secondly, celebrate the responsible stewardship that Americans are increasingly practicing in ocean waters. Um, yeah, it's great that this area has been preserved so well up to this point, and it definitely deserves to be recognized. Uh, so we uh, have, we're working on we're launching a campaign to get people to bring people on to asking for the president for this kind of a wondrous ocean area, and uh, we, you know, Ocean River Institute has 
44,500 individuals have signed up to get our e-alerts. And if you want to sign up, oceanriver.org. <laughs> and you can add your name. You can always unsubscribe. But what we do is when there's an opportunity to make a difference, we put out the word of what that specific one is. Here's the letter. You know, please sign the letter. But also, we encourage people to uh, write their own personal comments. So uh, by doing that, we were able to round up uh, 3,400 individuals signed the letter and 2,600 people on Facebook um, liked the letter so that um, we're showing an upwelling of uh, civic support for this concept. And what's important is that those letters are coming from uh, those, the signers. The people signing live in 52 American states and territories, including the Virgin Islands, uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, we didn't have this round here from Guam or Marshall Islands, uh, but we have in other campaigns. So it, it's really exciting to see um, how many people in such far-flung places care about this remote kind of ocean realm that we're trying to save. Yeah, it's great that it's a, a national area as opposed to just a regional uh, issue. Um, so this letter that we're working on for the president is a work in progress. Is this how most environmental organizations operate? No, it is the opposite. And, and the difference is that we call it a work in progress. So the, the first draft of the letter that people signed up to has, is evolving depending on how people respond to it. So we encourage people to, um, to, t- to take a moment and respond to it and then we make, and write their own personal comments. And so we want to make sure that the wording is inclusive of everyone's different perspectives. Because uh, we, this is a, a national uh, resource, and we want it to be belonging to everybody and not just, you know, the chosen few or something. Um, and, and so because of that, yeah, so we're different from the other organizations. We're unique in that most organizations, they uh, get their board together and their scientists together, and they develop a simple one-liner, you know, elevator speech that says, you know, this is what we want. And, um, and we don't do that. Um, we don't get all, you know, we don't get together with other groups and then all speak with one voice, you know, so there's no, you know, variation, no disharmony. It's all just clarity. And we don't then turn around with brute force to drive the decision with a big number of groups and people behind it. Um, and that's, that's a kind of command and control approach that the funders love. And it's also what gridlocks Washington because they're not finding solutions. They're just driving home you know, the best one-liner. And uh, the science is impeccable, but it's just the best one-liner. So the Ocean River Institute, we walk a very different talk. We dialogue and we give voices to many with messages that are rich in local nuances and perspectives and insights. And together, from 54 American states and island territories, we are many diverse voices that inform decisions. And so the Ocean River Institute puts the people the demos back into the democracy. And that's why, in the end, the big groups come to the little Ocean River Institute to speak on their behalf to the U.S. senators because, you know, these senators, because, you know, we're recognized. So the Ocean River Institute has been recognized as the best environmental organization. And that's because of our accomplishments that are gained by bringing the varied voices of many diverse people and groups 
to the decision makers, informing the very ones who are grappling with the complex problem and searching for solutions. I mean, only they know the complexity of the problem because they're hearing from people that you may not, or other people may not have heard from. Um, so they, they really are in, in the weeds there. And, and so um, it's just an honor to be able to have built these relationships with the decision makers and also the citizens on either end of the dialogue, the conversation. And so if you're interested, you can see this recognition by going to the Internet page. It's not our page. It's called www.bestenvironmentalorganization.com. Uh, one word, bestenvironmentalorganization.com. And, and you'll see, you know, who the, if it's 2015, you'll see us there. Uh, hopefully, if it's next year, you'll see us there too. But I don't know about that. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we need um, people. We need the listeners. We need you guys who are listening and your friends to join with us. And we need financial support because our approach is not what the big funders will support. Uh, so other organizations, they need little people so they that validates them that they left the little people with them. Um, but we don't have the wealthy board and the wealthy foundations supporting us because we're not um, – you know, the big funders, they don't want an organization that lets others speak different from their messages. And we speak freely from many hearts and minds, and decision makers listen. They're intrigued by the complexity of the voices we bring to bear, and they're hardened to serve their constituents. If we can connect people with their constituents, boy, that really makes politicians days. Um, and so be heard, and you can become part of the solutions affecting the changes for the better. You know, please sign up for our e-alerts. Join us on Facebook. Please make a donation. Go to www.oceanriver.org, and that is www.oceanriver.org. You know, a little bit, um, and we're setting it up on Facebook so that people can, you know, five for five, maybe, you know, people can find five friends who will give $5 or something like that because, you know, many doing a little lifting is going to move a huge, wondrous ocean place. Yeah, hopefully... Listeners do do end up supporting us, especially um, what we're working on right now, which is the wondrous ocean place. Um, so you took the letter that we're drafting for the president to Washington for vetting just when Secretary Kerry was attending the Oceans Conference in Chile. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. I, I told you how the the conference was what set this whole thing in motion in August, and and there I was just when President Kerry, uh, Secretary Kerry, was announcing that two new national marine sanctuaries, one in Lake Michigan and one, I think, on the Potomac, but certainly in Maryland. Um, and, uh, but I was going to Washington because, again, it was, the letters are work in progress. So the letter was addressed to the president. We put a lot into it. And, and then I want to share it with the legislators to make sure, because they are all working on That's what we initially contacted Senator Markey to do was, would you draft a letter you know, supporting this, urging the president to so act. And um, ultimately, uh, every New England, um, maybe not Vermont, but every, every other New England, yes, Vermont, because I saw Patrick Leahy, every New England uh, legislator um, is, um, every New England senator and the coastal legislators are, are writing to, uh, or most of them are writing to the president. And so we want to make sure that, um, a, I wanted to help inform them of what we were learning from the nation, 
And B, I wanted to know if there was something that I was saying wrong that would conflict with, if there's something that, we, we want to be similar. We don't want to be conflicting what we're asking for. Um, if there's a conflict, we want to work that out before taking it to CEQ and, and, and the president. Absolutely. Um, so how was your first day with meeting with House members? Um, so, yeah, so the first day was with, with all seven, um, the mass delegation, and particularly interested in New Hampshire. I talked to uh, Annie Custard, who's a Democrat from New Hampshire. Um, the coastal uh, legislators, um, Lynch and Moulton, Congressman Lynch, Moulton, and Keating, were most interested in how we can move forward their constituents, which are the fishermen, and respect their work and stuff. So that was a real eye-opener, and after that, I um, contact, went back to NRDC and said, look, guys, we've really got to get this inclusive going, and they helped me further craft the language so that we could move that forward. Cool. Um, so then the next day, Ocean's Champions held their board meeting and evening reception on the Hill. What is Ocean's That's Champions? That's right. So I'm a member of Ocean Champions, and um, Ocean Champions is a political 501c4 organization that holds politicians responsible for doing things good for the ocean. And about 69 congressmen and senators have done great stuff on the ocean, so they're recognized as ocean champions. And in the evening reception, we had 31 legislators, 13 senators and 18 congressional reps came on down, including you know Senator Ed Markey and, uh, and Senator uh, Blumenthal and Senator Whitehouse, um, some of the key players for um, this New England uh, uh, oceans management. Uh, Congress, uh, Congresswomen, uh, Songus, Clark, um, I think that's it. Um, yeah, so there was just a great informal t- chance for me to network with those, those senators. And then uh, we're running short on time, so I'm going to move quickly to uh, the next day I went to the, speak to the senators and uh, that was really interesting because I brought my letter to, to um, Anna Unruh-Cohen, who's working for Markey, and she's working in coordination with uh, Warren and with Lynch and Moulton and Keating. Uh, and so uh, it was nice to see that we're on the same page. And uh, about four or five days after I left my letter with them, they came out with their letter, uh, which even speaks more strongly to the, the interests of the fishermen, but also just as strong about protecting it from, uh, uh, from oil, gas, and, and uh, mineral mining. So uh, it was a very successful day, uh, and, and we're all coming together for one voice. And so now um, we need to just get more people involved. Uh, so we're trying to set up stuff on Facebook and on um, you know, using the social media so that we can get, we need more people now. So please, um, you know, if you're listening to this show, um, you know, drop, send us a note, tell us who you are, um, join us on Facebook. Okay, Rob, so what can people do, including listeners to this show, um, do to support creating a National Marine Monument in the Gulf of Maine? Yes. So what people can do is you need to... um, Uh, we need to, uh, you know, visit our webpage and, and um, look for uh, 
join us on Facebook. That's that's the really cool thing is that we're setting up a, a, a program with Classy.org to uh, reach out and, and have people be able to give friend to friend. Um, and and we just sent something out. The other, we did a trial run just recently. Remember that? Yep. Um, I actually created my own fundraising page on Classy. Um, and sending that out to friends to, in hopes that they'll contribute to creating a National Mayor Monument as well. Um, they can join with me or they can create their own page too, and when a gift is made, it's recognized on both pages, so it really does a, does a lot to help achieve our goals um, in creating this National Marine Monument. Yeah, this is truly grassroots. You know, this is where, um, you know, if if you could... So when you get the, the, the um, you see it on Facebook or you get the email, you know, your friend or, or me or Alex or someone's going to ask you, you know, to, to join with us. And you don't have to give to join with us. It would be great if, you know, we need people joining with us. We need people spreading the, the petition around. We need people adding their voices. It's the richness. We want you to give two things, one or three things. Some time and energy, one. Two, your voice. We want some personal comments. That, that really carries a lot. And three, you know, we would like a little do-re-mi, a few dollars and stuff. So, you know, you could, um, if your friend writes to you, um, you could sign up for $5 and your friend would be recognized as raising $5 more and you could launch your own page and your $5 would be at the bottom of that. Uh, it, it's nice to, to see the little money if you're asking other people to partake in it. Um, but um, it, it's getting exciting about engaging people. It's just wonderful the feedback we're getting about. I just got a letter from someone who said, Dear Rob, I so appreciate learning from your articles, your wisdom, your great heart. And, you know, just those kinds of words mean so much not only to us, but also to the people, the legislators and the president who have to do the heavy lifting of putting this, um, it means more big government, you know, so it's a heavy lift. And so they need to hear from people that this is what we want them to do. Right, it's great to include voices for many people when you're advocating for any issue, really. Yeah, and, and so, you know, the Ocean River Institute, we operate, you know, our mission is to foster greater personal involvement in the conservation, stewardship, and protection of ecosystems. And by facilitating the grassroots efforts of individuals and groups working at local and regional ref levels, we succeed. And the Ocean River Institute operates based on the belief that many of these issues are best addressed by people taking action in their own communities from the ground or the seascape on up. So I invite you all to voyage with us and visit our website, oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org. Please stay in touch. Signing up online for e-alerts that will alert you when best to act and when to share with friends. You know, join with us on Facebook. Um, and please forward this podcast. You know, this is easy. You can just forward it or you can uh, tell friends and family to check it out. Um, please, you know, and so together with others, even outside of government, we are all coming together to clean up the waters for saving wildlife and promoting a healthy quality of life for us all. So, Alex, I want to thank you for talking with me about how we're going to create a wondrous ocean place sort of like a national park in the ocean, but it's going to involve, you know, it's going to take a nation. We all need a hand in making sure that this thing is properly managed. I mean, it's way the heck out there. And so if there are mm-hmm. strikes or there are problems out there, uh, we, we need to, um, 
have eyes on the sea. You know, we need to have people interacting up there. And what a cool opportunity to go out and see, you know, fabulous wildlife with your family and friends uh, in these way distant realms, uh, including Cassius Ledge in the Gulf of Maine, Oceanographer's Canyon, uh, four other canyons further off, and five, four or five deep sea mounts. Yeah, um, from a personal standpoint, since I've been from been since I'm from Massachusetts, it, it has a um, really profound impact on me, and I wholeheartedly support and hope that the Marine Monument is established. Um, it really is a wondrous ocean place, and it's been really cool learning about it and talking with you about it. Um, it's important that it's protected from oil and gas and mineral mining because that area deserves to be protected. So, yeah, please, hopefully everybody will join us at OceanRiver.org and friend us on Facebook. Thank you, Alex. And that's another marvelous conversation. I'm Rob Moyer, and thank you all for listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Episode 100. Oh, my gosh. Bring on the champagne. Mark. <laughs> Holy smokes. 100 episodes. So you can see other episodes on our website, OceanRiver.org. And until next time, keep doing what we do every day. Try to save our ocean, rivers, and watershed. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.